as I was going back over my notes from last week's message, something struck me about what I said last week where I had to cut off the message with a view to where the text is gradually taking us over the next couple of weeks. The Christian church has grown used to an oversimplified proclamation week after week. This is my personal opinion, an observation. Obviously, my opinions are not comprehensive in scope. But in my estimation, it's a pretty well-demonstrated, clear theme that's developed over the past 20 years or so. And again, that is that the church has grown used to an oversimplified proclamation of God's Word. But this isn't at all what we see in the Scriptures. I made this statement from last week's message. Paul realized that what he had just laid on the Philippian Christians was not lighthearted. And so that got me to thinking about the passage that we're moving into, especially next week, but also all of Paul's writings and all of the writers of the Bible. And that is that they didn't shy away from tackling intricate doctrines and complex spiritual principles to their first century audience. The life principles that they explain oftentimes are rigorously detailed. They're even complicated at times. And let's not forget that the people of the day to whom these were written over the centuries from Genesis to Revelation, they didn't have the benefit of commentaries on the Scriptures like we have. They didn't have the benefit of all of the books that have been written and all the presentations that one can avail themselves of. They didn't obviously have TV broadcasts or radio programs or CDs or DVDs or podcasts, much less video access to church services all over the world where one can drop in online and see some of the most articulate communicators and brilliant scholars in the world. That wasn't the case back then, obviously. And they didn't have any New Testament resources from the subsequent centuries of scholarship like we have available to us today. And yet again, understanding all that, the biblical writers didn't dumb down or gloss over or omit intricate theology, fearing that the preacher, in this case the Apostle Paul, might be speaking over the heads of those to whom they were trying to communicate these sometimes mind-boggling truths. This provoked my thinking again about the lengths that I think many of today's pastors and disciples go to hoping to make the God of heaven accessible. Or more than that, someone to whom they can relate. And in the process, in a sense, bringing God down from heaven in the name of making him easier to know. But this morning we have Paul commencing in this letter to the church at Philippi, called Philippians, commencing on one of what I think is the most profound thoughts and realities which have gigantic implications for all of mankind, and yet his treatment of them is only in a matter of a handful of sentences. So this causes me to question whether or not we have grown too sloppy in our proclamation of God's revelation in the name of wanting to be relevant. 
And maybe we've become too informal or too casual in the interest of not being so lofty that the people we're trying to reach miss what God is saying to each and every one. But I can't escape the fact that the people of Scripture were basically pretty much across the board were uneducated, were very largely illiterate and unrefined, and yet God didn't send his word to them as a pop-up book of nursery rhymes, catering to the lowest common intellect of the day. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for clear communication and interesting ways of presenting God's truth, but it does remind me that the act of preaching, and by that I don't mean just what takes place in the pulpits across the world, but the act of preaching or witnessing, as it's more commonly called, as it pertains to just the Christians of the Christian church as they try to speak to their friends or their relatives or their co-workers or whoever about things of Scripture and things of the Lord. The act of preaching and the act of hearing, hearing with understanding, is supernatural. Paul lets us know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he says that, that the, without the Spirit of God, the things of God cannot be understood. They can't be discerned because, in Paul's words, they are spiritually appraised. So here's the thing. When you look at the church in America... What has been the net upshot? What's the outcome from all of our advantages with respect to the resources available that I listed? If following Jesus was first and foremost the result of filling our heads with knowledge about history, culture, missions, and technology, Christians in America would have to be the most vibrant, energetic, focused, spirit-filled, successful Christians in the world. (laughs) But if you're at all familiar with missiology, that's not the case. In so many ways... Of all the key parameters, the church, enclosed, unwelcoming communist China, is more vibrant than the church in America. Now, if my assertion here is true, then what this means is that Christian maturity, growing in our love and knowledge of Christ, not just in head knowledge, but in in practical outworking in our lives, is not, first and foremost, about capturing one's head. It must be, first and foremost, about capturing one's heart. And as Paul says, again, that is uniquely the role of God Almighty. Well, how do you do that? In a very succinct way, James, writing in the book of that name, chapter 1, verse 22, says, Prove yourselves doers of the word of God and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. One thing that I learned in the army 
was that to be a successful soldier, I didn't need to know a lot of knowledge. I didn't have to have a ton of understanding or even the strategy about our mission. What I needed was a heart that was totally sold out to my commander. What we are tackling today is not an issue first of being intellectually convinced of the nuances and the intricacies of incarnation with every question answered and every philosophical stone overturned. And I'm referring to the text that we're going to be in this morning and next week. It is rather a matter of every Christian's heart attitude about the way we act in our lives, living that life in light of the reality that I have been created by a God who made me for himself. He doesn't exist for my benefit and privilege, but rather the believer exists for his purposes and plans. Now, don't misunderstand me, rather, in all of this. I'm not suddenly, all of a sudden, I'm going to turn anti-intellectual. Because Paul certainly wasn't that way. He didn't write that way. He didn't think that way. And a matter of fact, Paul was highly educated. He was one of those rare exceptions of the day, being educated under the Jewish teacher who was renowned named Gamaliel. Paul was a bright guy, and his erudition comes out in his proclamation, in his letters to the churches. But he knew that if the Holy Spirit was not at work in the heart of the people hearing him, they would not hear him. No matter how clever, no matter how crafty, no matter how creative his speaking might be, and no matter what the intelligence quotient was of his particular audience. Now think about this as far as how freeing this should be to the Christian who rarely opens his mouth to another person about his faith because there's that insecurity there that they're not very knowledgeable about the Bible and they're certainly not articulate. But you see, as I said, the preaching, the proclamation of God's Word doesn't just just stop at the pulpit. It pertains to what we call witnessing today. That is, somebody, just a Christian, you know, just a routine individual who's a follower of Christ, sharing their story and the things that God has done in his life with another person. That witnessing act is also supernatural. Which takes the pressure off of having to feel like you're going to have to answer every question that's put to you. Because if you do, you'll never open your mouth. So Paul commences witnessing here, where he left off at the end last week of chapter 1 in this book of Philippians. This is what he writes, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection... And compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Let me reread this the way that it is intended to be understood, and I'm going to be reading from the CPV, the Cripe paraphrase version. If in your union with Christ. In other words, the day you gave your life to Christ and the Father sees you now inextricably woven into and part of Christ. 
if in that union, is there anything about that that encourages you? If in your union with Christ there is anything that consoles you, knowing the depths of God's love for you, is there? If in your union with Christ there is anything of value and anything of comfort in having unbridled access to a friendship with the very creator of the universe, if you've ever experienced a reality to God's affection for you and have ever felt his compassion on you, then, Christian, you are obligated to be like him, imitating him, thinking the way he thinks, loving the way he loves, and unified with the rest of the people of the church. (laughs) In spite of any of your differences with each other. And all of this is for the singular reason that God's kingdom purposes and God's kingdom causes go forth. It doesn't matter if your ego gets bruised. It doesn't matter if your turf occasionally or routinely gets invaded by someone who thinks they have a better way or just a different way. Or maybe their personality is one of those that you just don't mesh with. You know, you just, you just, you just, frankly, you just don't like the person. Do you know that we are not called to like everyone in the body of Christ? What? Well, Jesus, hang on. I said, we're not called to have to like everybody in the body of Christ. Paul didn't like Barnabas. If you know the story of Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and the missionary journeys and Paul and Barnabas, man, there's not a whole lot written here. But it's clear from the little snippets that we have through the various missions that Paul took where Barnabas was involved and all of a sudden Barnabas and Paul were told they had a split. They had to get away from each other. We don't know exactly what it was there, but I suspect it was that Paul and Barnabas were two peas of the same pod. You know, we tend not to get along with people who are just like us. (laughs) They ended, by the way, they did end up later on in Paul's life, coming back together unified in purpose for the mission of Christ. We're not called to like everybody in the body, but we do have to Love everybody in the body. See, do I think that even even all that it means for me to be in Christ, do I think for a moment that God likes me at every moment? <laughs> I really don't think so. When I say and I do things that are unpleasing, things that disappoint my Heavenly Father, I mean, really, do, do you think He likes me? Let me ask you a question. Do you like your children every moment of every day? Okay, you answered that question. But saying that, do you stop loving them at the moments when you don't like them? So Paul, in what is the beginning of, as I said, what I think is the most profound aspect of the redemption story, gives every follower of Jesus a wake-up call. 
to have to think through exactly what it is that happened when Jesus took on flesh, that he took on flesh and bone and blood and became a human being, what we call the incarnation. Up to this point in his letter, Paul has been effusively affirming of these believers at Philippi. They were clearly, when you read all of Paul's writings, they were clearly his favorites. He played favorites. He loved them. He just gushes on them where he doesn't about most of the other churches. He loved the Philippian believers. But as affirming as he has been, this letter now to them changes, at least in focus, because the best Christians lose sight of what it means beyond slogans and cliches that God took on human form, that God became a man. You see, this is more than just heavy theology. It's a very deep thought worth pondering, savoring, and meditating, and then applying to one's life. And you see, it must be a life-changing theme of one's existence because the Holy Spirit who has been given to the true believer is real and with you and He lives inside of the real believer to enable us to understand such deep truths of God's revealing Himself. And when you do that, Paul continues, still paraphrasing, writes to his favorite church that you will make him one happy apostolic camper. But remember again, this isn't just the Apostle Paul writing. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and is profitable for correction, for reproof, for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness. This is exactly the same as if God himself were speaking, because he is. So Paul's positive letter to this church just took a bit of a turn from the opening passages of chapter 1, intimating that as good as this church was, there was some interpersonal strife at Philippi. And Paul has no qualms about calling them out on it and insisting that they correct it. In the words of Solomon in the Proverbs, he says, Deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So as Paul is moving toward verses 5 through 7, which we'll get to next week, he's going to use Jesus as the supreme example, even laying a bit of a guilt trip on the Philippians. And guess what? Some guilt trips are godly. That's right. One of the reasons that the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells the believer is to convict, we're citing scripture now, is to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Holy Spirit there is to play that little conscience within us now that goes beyond our natural fleshly carnal conscience. We can trample on him, which we do routinely. We can ignore him. We can buck him. We can do the opposite of what he wants, but he's there if you're a true Christian, a real follower of Christ. He's there. And a guilt trip that's designed by God not by your mother or your mother-in-law or your wife or husband or whatever it is, but a godly guilt trip is meant to force one back to the Heavenly Father in repentance to receive His mercy and grace and love once again so that He no longer just loves you, but that He also likes you. Well, it's in verses 3 and 4 that Paul begins his corrective. 
And in the corrective, we get a feel for what was going on at Philippi. And the Spirit made sure that it was recorded for every age because what Paul addresses to this, again, to this very good church is common to every church in every age because the Philippian situation is common to every person born with a sin nature, which is everyone. And if you like, you could call verses 3 and 4 principles for maximizing your usefulness to God. Let me read verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. All right. I think I think that, that, that of all the things Paul talks about here, I think that we tend to understand selfishness quite well. At least as a concept in others. Yeah. But we don't recognize it nearly as well in ourselves. I want to illustrate this as how natural it is for us to be self-centered or to be selfish. And I'm going to do so by calling someone out this morning. Ooh, whoa, what? You're not supposed to do that, Pastor. Man, that's not going to sit well. No, I have to do it. It'll be, I think it'll be compelling, and it'll help underscore my point as everybody's like getting a little lower in their seats. Well, I'm sorry. The one that I'm calling out this morning is me. Whew. Honest to goodness. This is so hysterical. I'm so tempted to use her name because she's such a good friend and she is so funny. We were in the back room. We we always pray before the first service. The worship team gets together for prayer. And I started talking about something. And sure enough, boom, what I'm going to illustrate here happened. And after the sermon, he or she, say, I'm not even going to give you that much, came up to me and said, I did exactly what you were talking about. In fact, when you were leading up to it, I was sitting there going, he's talking about me, he's talking about me, he's talking about me. And she said, and when you said, that's exactly what I did. When you said it was you, I went, (laughs) Okay, so let me illustrate this of how natural it is for us just to be selfish. And these are really low-key, low-level areas so that you can relate to it because I think we all do it. So a friend comes up to me who just recently, quite a bit younger than me, has been to their 25th high school reunion. And so and you can put yourself in this place, okay? So they come up to you and they start telling you, oh, yeah, man, Friday night we had my 25th reunion. Holy cow, it was surreal. I mean, you know what? You see all these kids that you haven't seen since high school. And, and, and there they were. I mean, there was these dorky kids who you just knew were the biggest geeks on the face of the earth, man. And now they're like these hyper-business executives who, you know, just are six-figure incomes and everything else. And there I am. And uh, wow. And they're going on with this story, right? And you know what I do? Before they're even done. Oh, yeah, my 25th reunion, even though it was 50 years ago. Yeah, my 25th reunion, man. Oh, yeah, everybody was coming up to me and saying, Cripe, holy cow, you actually grew after you got out of high school. And Now, it's not that funny. It was a very painful time. I think Mr. Pollock might be able to relate with me. 
I'm just saying. You'll see when you meet them out back. Great things come in small packages. Amen. All right. So look what I just did. Okay? I completely hijacked his moment. Hey, I'm telling you a story about my weekend and what happened. And it's like, yeah, 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 but obviously my story's more interesting. Here, I'm sure you'd want to hear it more than you tell me your story. That's nothing but selfishness. Right? We think we take that ball, we throw it out in front of us, and instead of going, it just goes in orbit right around us and just keeps going. That's our sin nature. Well, it's not always that flagrant. Sometimes it is genuinely done with good intention. One of the ones that, again, I manage to commit routinely, although I'm I'm getting a little better at it, not great, but a little better. Somebody comes up to you and they say, boy, you know, if you just keep my father, you know, in your prayers and during his holidays, he's, this is going to be his first Thanksgiving, first Christmas without my mom. And, man, he's just really in the pit. And I go, oh, you know, oh, yeah, wow. You know what? I remember when my grandfather lost his, and there I go again. What did I do? I just hijacked this poor person's moment because I want the spotlight on me. It's about me. It's about me. Surely you're interested in me and I want to get it out. Now, I know that nobody else relates to that, but that's who I am. (laughs) On my tiptoes, but I'm standing. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness. It's sneaky. See, I just gave kind of the sneaky version of how selfishness can, can crop up. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, which literally there means the... Kinodoxi, uh, the empty glory, not glory like in the glory or magnificence of God, but taking the attention, that simple, unto yourself. It's different than selfishness by nuance, but it bleeds over from selfishness. It can take the form of making sure that you get the credit, you get the notice for something, that you want to be sure that the accolades come your way. You get the attaboys or the girls. This is very prominent in the business world, but it is wicked prominent in the church of Jesus Christ. And it can take the form, in fact, usually does, of doing what might even appear to be very spirit-filled, but in honesty it's being done to be noticed, to be seen. It's part of the pharisaical syndrome, doing things for show, wanting someone to notice how close to God you are. I appreciated Dr. Nanakin's honesty two weeks ago. He was talking about this a little bit with respect to the abuses of one of the theological movements that really focuses and concentrates on the gifts of the Spirit by highlighting the certain visible, exciting gifts to the exclusion of the other valid gifts that are listed in Scripture but aren't nearly so exciting. That Paul mentions selfishness and empty conceit here is precisely because these were issues in this otherwise very healthy, very solid church. And Paul gives the chiding corrective. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, 
But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So were the Philippian believers that so far afield here that they needed an apostolic intervention? No. Again, they were a great church. But great churches are made up of redeemed sinners. (laughs) And redeemed sinners are still sinners. They're just redeemed. And like all sinners who develop bad habits, ungodly attitudes, they needed an attitude adjustment. The Spirit says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Try to imagine the impact of just this single aspect of transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit that it would have on any, any church. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Can you think of the impact this one fruit of transformation would have on any marriage? Paul's a straight shooter. And he is a spirit-filled realist. (laughs) He knows people because Paul knows himself. And Paul has a good ability to be honest with himself. And so he can be honest with people. And Paul understood that even Paul needed attitude adjustments along the way. Even the great Apostle Paul. He tells us so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember the little vignette that's given there? He's speaking to the Corinthians and he tells them about how God had visited him and he doesn't even know what the nature of this visitation was. He doesn't know if he was asleep and he was having a dream or if he was a vision or if he was literally taken out of body and into the heavens. But he had a vision of heaven and it wasn't just for five minutes. And we never hear much about that. But this is what he says about that. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, again, referring expressly to this one, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. (laughs) And he wasn't writing it complaining. He was saying, this is the nature of who I am. It's the nature of who we are. You see, Paul needed an attitude adjustment to keep him from going down the road that so many pastors and just Christians go down and have fallen and crashed and burned. And it's the road called Pride Avenue. And it comes from being so taken with one's own sense of importance. And what happens is you start ignoring the rules. Suddenly the rules tend to apply to everybody else, but not for you. I mean, hey, I mean, after all, you're you. I don't know how many golfing enthusiasts we have in here, but when Tiger Woods had his cataclysmic fall and it was revealed that he had been having numerous serial 
adulterous affairs while he was married to his dear wife, their children and all. He faced the cameras and he stood there and he looked into it, having written out supposedly all of his own accord. And what he said in essence was this, I have become so big, so wealthy, so famous that I just kind of thought, I guess, that the rules no longer applied to me. It's a common track that anybody can take. And Paul certainly knew that he wasn't immune to the allure of the flesh. But God was helping him remember it. And I assure that everybody in here today that if Paul was not immune, I'm not immune. And neither are you. I began last week's message talking about using the right tool for the right job. And I inferred that you don't use a pipe wrench to adjust your lug nuts, that you don't use a torque wrench to adjust a hex head bolt. (laughs) But my opening illustration with all of that made little sense because I never landed that plane. The tower had given us clearance for landing this morning, I thought, (laughs) but they've rescinded it. And so there we are. We're still circling above waiting for a gate to open now. But I am confident that that gate's going to open next week. So we will spend next week on this as well. I do not want to rush through it. And I'm going to concentrate on the application of this, specifically verses 5 through 7, and how this should, this must play out in every believer's life. I can tell you that the application of this in your heart and in your home is going to require several and continuing attitude adjustments. Well, I asked last week at the beginning there, what kind of a tool do you use to give an attitude adjustment? It looks like a particular kind of lug wrench called a T-bar. which is reminiscent of a cross. And hokey, admittedly, though this is, the only tool that can help the people of God continually tweak one's attitude is the cross of Jesus. Which is why verses 5 and 7 are so downright profound. And we will deal with them next week. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do as Don Cole is coming up to close our time in prayer. I think, Don, are you it? Okay. I want you just to read those verses. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. Three verses. Three verses. Read them every day until next Sunday. And when you do, before you read them or after you read them, every day, just say, Lord, show me what attitude adjustments I need in my life to become more like you. I'm highly motivated not to give any personal stories this morning. (laughs) So let me point you to the one, thinking of the hymn this morning, I guess you'd call it a confessional hymn. We believe our God is Jesus. We believe that he is Lord.
believe that he has saved us from sin and death once and for all. Lay that over against this morning's final verse in chapter 4. Anyways, not looking out for his own interest, for the interest of others. Let's pray to him. Lord Jesus, thank you for your selfless and unspeakable act. Thank you for reaching out uh, to an undeserving people. Uh, we will always and forever be grateful to you. So, Lord, please uh, be at work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure with the end game, the end goal, that we would be like you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.